DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with Ignatius Press, presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer-in-residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. The Merchant of Venice is probably the most controversial of all Shakespeare's plays. It is also one of the least understood. Is it a comedy or a tragedy? What is the meaning behind the test of the caskets? Who is the real villain of the trial scene? Is Shylock simply vicious and venomous, or is he more sinned against than sinning? One of the most popular of Shakespeare's plays, King Lear, is also one of the most thought-provoking. The play turns on the practical ramifications of the words of Christ, that we should render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. When confronted with the demand that she should render unto Caesar that which is God's, Cordelia chooses to love and be silent. As the play unfolds, each of the principal characters learns wisdom through suffering. We now begin our discussion of William Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice and King Lear. King Lear and The Merchant of Venice are really extraordinary works. Absolutely. And first of all, The Merchant of Venice is a comedy. And you wouldn't believe that if you saw the way it's normally staged today, where it's Mm -hmm. turned into a tragedy. And King Lear is technically a tragedy that's actually also a comedy in the sense that if if a tragedy ultimately is defined by someone uh, through pride falling and having a tragic end, well, yes, Lear is a tragedy in the sense that he does fall because of his pride, but he seems to be redeemed by the love of Cordelia at the end and has this beatific vision of the resurrected Cordelia. So it's not just a happy ending for King Lear, it's actually an ecstatic ending. He's in ecstasy. So again, Shakespeare defying easy categorization. The fact that The Merchant of Venice as a comedy is being portrayed in many ways and on the stage as something that is very, very tragic, that's one of the important reasons why we should be entering into the reading of the play ourselves. Oh, absolutely. And not just entering into the reading of the play, but to read it within the context of Ignatius' Critical Edition. My favorite is the the Merchant of Venice. And the reason is, I think we have eight essays in the back, Mm -hmm. all of which throw light on the play from different aspects. So there's an economist writing about how Shakespeare and Shakespeare's culture looked upon usury. And another one from a lawyer at the UCLA Law School looking at the law behind the trial scene with Portia and Shylock, others looking at the the theological dimension, the philosophical dimension. And really, it's like taking a whole course on The Merchant of Venice, if you actually systematically read those, and then particularly if you wanted to test yourself with the study guide as well with Mm -hmm. the questions. 
So The Merchant of Venice is one of the most misunderstood and abused works of literature in the whole Western canon. It's almost universally staged in a way which does violence to Shakespeare's meaning. And that's why it's very important for us to understand exactly what does Shakespeare mean by The Merchant of Venice. Bring forward for us the elements that are abused and abused. Well, the first thing is that Shylock, who's a very much a secondary character in the play, has become the main focus. That's the first problem. And the second problem is the way that we focus upon him is that a consequence of terrible things that were done in the 20th century by secular fundamentalism, by the turning away from Christianity. So, for instance, by the Holocaust, the persecution of the Jews by Nazi Germany. Now, first of all, Germany turns away from God, turns away from Christ. And then uh, the ideas of people such as Nietzsche, we get this monster Hitler come into power who carries out the systematic persecution of the Jews. And now we see Shylock now not as a usurer, but as a Jew. Mm-hmm. Now, Shakespeare did not see Jews the way that we see Jews, first of all, because there were no Jews in England at all in Shakespeare's time. I mean, a handful. He wouldn't know any because they were actually expelled from England 300 years earlier and wouldn't come in for about 40 or so years after Shakespeare died. He doesn't know Jews as we know them. And certainly, of course, we can't blame Shakespeare for the Holocaust. And the other thing I want to say about Shylock as well as regards making him the central focus is to draw an analogy with Dickens that if A Christmas Carol is renamed Scrooge, which it has been, of course, in some dramatizations, mm-hmm. we don't feel too offended because you know, Scrooge is the central character. It really is all about Scrooge and his conversion. So you know, we might think, well, why do you have to change the title? But it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. But if the title of Oliver Twist was changed to Fagin, and Fagin was made the central character in, in the novel, we would see that violence was being done to the novel because Fagin is quite clearly a secondary character. Well, the role of Shylock in The Merchant of Venice is much closer to the role of Fagin in Oliver Twist than it is to the role of Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. So mm-hmm. to make Shylock the principal focus is doing great violence to the play. Again, it is important for us then to look at the plays, to read them, to take them in in context with the help of the additions. Because by the very fact that they're a play, they have the ability by a director staging that play to change it in any way he desires to get his point if they're not careful. Absolutely. And, and it's happening all the time because with, with relativists, of course, they see no reason why they shouldn't do that because they don't believe in this objective dignity of the work itself. So they can manipulate it, change it, distort it, take things out and do what they like. But for someone who understands the art as being incarnational, as being something which is the product of the relationship between the artist and his muse, in other words, between the artist and the grace given to him by God to use his talents to produce this wonderful thing, that needs to be seen for what it is, uh, not even necessarily for what you want it to be, but for what it is, through the eyes of the author. To see a work of art objectively, ideally, and perfectly, you have to see it through the eyes of God, Mm -hmm. see it as it really is. We can't do that. But what we can do is to try to see it as objectively as possible. And that means to see it through the eyes of the author as far as that's possible. And the good thing about that, that allows us to discipline ourselves to try to learn to see through the eyes of genius. To see with Shakespeare's eyes is going to show us much more of the world than to insist on seeing Shakespeare's play through our own eyes, unassisted by Shakespeare. It's unfortunate The Merchant of Venice 
has this taint of racism surrounding it because the other elements of the play that Shakespeare is trying to communicate are very valuable to today's world. Absolutely. And of course, the element which is misnamed as racism, as, as we've discussed already, is, is largely about economics. It's not about race at all. It's about religion, Judaism and Christianity, and it's about economics, usury versus a just economic, socially just economic system. But this is very much a secondary storyline. The Merchant of Venice ultimately is about three moral focal points, all of which point morally and religiously in the right direction. So the first is the test of the caskets. And the test of the caskets is that the one who chooses death, the one who chooses self-sacrifice, is the one who wins his heart's desire. And those who choose the worldly and the material, the gold casket, the silver casket, do not get their heart's desire, but left bereft of the things that really matter. We should remember, by the way, that the play is set always in two places, Belmont, which is the heavenly view of things, the religious, sublime, Christian view of things, and Venice, which is the venal, gutter, materialistic view of things. Well, those who choose gold and silver end up in the world of Venice. That's where they belong. Whereas the one who chooses self-sacrifice, Bassanio, ultimately ascends into the Belmont, the beautiful heights of this religious view of things. That's the first focal point. The second focal point is the focal point of the trial, which is, again, is emphatically not about Charlotte being Jewish. It's about usury, but more important than that, it's about justice and mercy. It's about the need to show mercy, the need not to demand justice. And in the Ignatius Critical Edition, Daniel Lowenstein, the, the law professor from UCLA that I mentioned, shows actually that when you read the law scene closely and well, that what Portia's trying to do in her dialogue with Shylock is to get him off the hook. She's not actually talking about so much about Shylock showing mercy to Antonio. Mm-hmm. That's the device she's using, but the motive for doing that is to show mercy to Shylock so that Shylock doesn't condemn himself by insisting on killing Antonio, which, of course, cutting out the pound of flesh nearest his heart would mm-hmm. kill him. So she's doing her best to get him to step back from that because you, know, that you can't kill someone because of an economic transaction. So he's on the verge of condemning himself, and Portia's doing her best in that trial to show mercy towards Shylock. And in so doing, of course, showing Shylock how he should show mercy to Antonio. From The Merchant of Venice, Act 4, Scene 1, by William Shakespeare. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. It is mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power. The attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which if thou follow, the strict court of Venice must needs give sentence against the merchant there. 
So it's about mercy and justice. And then the final uh, focal point is the test of the rings at the end, which basically is how the oaths that we take, the casket scene, when you agree to lay down your life for your love, which Pisanio does, is mm-hmm. something which is not meaningless. So the ring that was then given as a symbol of that laying down one's life for one's love, the symbol of marriage, is something sacrosanct and cannot be given away for any reason. So the three focal points, and ending with that one, ends with sort of lots of laughs, lots of jokes, and then ends very happily, that these three moral focal points are what the play's about. If we lose that focus, that Belmontian focus, seeing the play from the angle of Belmont, from Portia's perspective, we not understand the play at all. The role of Portia is, you said, essential if you can look through her eyes at the play. King Lear, similar in a very real way to his beautiful daughter, Cordelia. Yeah, Shakespeare has this astonishing ability to give us very, very strong female characters. We, we discussed when we were talking about Macbeth and Hamlet, we talked about Ophelia, who's defined by her weakness, but Lady Macbeth, who's defined by her strength, but it's, of course it's a, it's a demonic, satanic strength. In Merchant of Venice, King Lear, we have two really, really strong feminine characters who are defined by their sanctity. Cordelia we don't see too much of in King Lear. It's almost as if her absence is a powerful presence because Mm -hmm. she's the good sister who's been sent into exile as opposed to the two we see on stage who are Machiavels or Machiavella, perhaps we should say. And she's the pure one. And at the end, it's her purity that wins back King Lear to goodness and virtue and, and ultimately to this beatific vision of the resurrected Cordelia. In Portia, we have this character who's witty, holy, wise, outmaneuvers all of her male adversaries uh, in the courtroom and out, and leads all of them, with the exception of the stubborn Shylock who seems to refuse, closer to heaven. And Belmont here, of course, is is closer to heaven. That's the whole point. It's the high places. Mm -hmm. So we have this great intellect. She has some of the greatest lines in Shakespeare. I mean, the quality of mercy speech is, is absolutely sublime. So, yes, Shakespeare does something that feminism can never do, and that is to show the, the strength and the beauty and the dignity and the intelligence and the wit and the wisdom and the holiness of women. They really do shine, as you pointed out, in his other works. I'm thinking of The Taming of the Shrew. That is a standout that many are familiar with, but much ado about nothing. I mean, there's so many other female characters throughout this. You'd be remiss to think of just Ophelia or Juliet. Exactly. So that when people sort of say that Shakespeare, that the sort of Marxist perspective, Marxist criticism, that he's all part of the patriarchal society, it's all about male domination. Well, you know, it, it quite simply isn't about male domination. I mean, the Merchant of Venice is quite clearly about the superiority of the feminine view from Belmont over the masculine uh, shenanigans of Venice and clearly showing that really everybody needs to uh, understand this feminine dimension and we should say one thing here of course is that at the heart of catholicism is this true understanding of true femininity that christ is the bridegroom the church is the bride and in that capacity all of us as christians male and female are the bride of christ so Mm -hmm. it's not that you know that men are not supposed to have a feminine side we are all brides of christ if we understand the ecclesiology the church herself of course is the bride of christ so the church herself is feminine so Shakespeare, of course, as a believing Catholic who clearly understood his theology, was very much at home with this femininity being something which is, transcends gender, if you like. Portia, of course, is a character that he brings to life during the time of Queen Elizabeth. 
Yes, again, one thing that's very important as a subtext in The Merchant of Venice is how Portia is speaking on behalf of the English martyrs. One thing that we do show in the Ignatius Critical Edition, and I do it in more detail in my book, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, is showing how Shakespeare is alluding to the martyrdom of St. Robert Southall, the Jesuit, whom he certainly knew, probably personally, probably on, as a friend, but certainly knew his work without any doubt whatsoever. And mm-hmm. Shakespeare is alluding to St. Robert Southall's own poetry in The Merchant of Venice. And The Merchant of Venice was written at around the time that Sir Robert Southall was martyred, was hanged, drawn, and quartered for his Catholic faith. So again, we see echoes of this. First of all, in the test of the caskets, what do we do for our love? Now, for a Jesuit priest, of course, he's in the persona Christi, lays down his life for his bride for the church. He passes the test of the caskets. He doesn't choose gold or silver. He chooses the lead, the lead of the coffin. And then in the trial scene, Portia is perhaps even partially addressing Queen Elizabeth you know, about the quality of mercy. How can you be condemning these priests to death for the practice of their religion? Surely you need to be showing mercy over justice. And of course, the justice is itself unjust. And then, of course, the test of the rings at the end, because you know, ultimately, fidelity unto death to our bride. In Catholic ecclesiology, and Shakespeare uses this all the time, you know, that the bride and bridegroom always resonates with Christ and the church. And he does the same thing in King Lear, where King Lear, in his sort of agony in the garden speech, has lots of allusions to Christ suffering in the agony of the garden, including the allusion to bride and bridegroom for Christ and church. King Lear is written during the reign of King James. Is Shakespeare attempting to make some allusions to his monarchy? Absolutely. Uh, uh, King James I famously was an advocate of the idea of the divine right of kings, that basically the king can do what he likes. And what we see, of course, in King Lear is this playing out of this Machiavellian philosophy. First of all, Lear himself reneges on his duties as kingship, because you know the whole point about the divine right of kings is not about my duty to mm-hmm. you, it's about your duty to me, because I'm the king. Well, King Lear starts with that, saying, well, I, I'm going to renege on my duties to my people. I'm going to just basically abdicate my throne. Uh, and you have to show me how much you love me. And, of course, love then is, uh, as a material thing, the Machiavels, uh, again, his two deceitful daughters, lie to him about how much they love him. The true daughter refuses to lie. Now, Cordelia here is in exactly the same position as St. Robert Southall, that we've just mentioned, or even more famously, St. Thomas More that when the king, King Henry VIII, now King James I, is demanding that he, as the head of the church, demands absolute legions in matters of religion. And, of course, Thomas More famously said, I am the king's good servant, but God's first. Or Cordelia says, I will give unto you all that love which is right fit. I will love you as my father. I cannot love you as I would love my husband, for instance. Mm -hmm. And again, husband, wife, bridegroom, bride. So exactly the same thing, that a Catholic cannot give all of his love to the king. He can only give that aspect of his love to the king, which is rightfully belongs to the king, that which is purely secular and political, not that which is religious and divine. So Cordelia really is in the place of the martyr who's forced into exile by loving and being silent, by refusing to play the king's game, by saying that they love him more than anything else. From King Lear, Act 2, Scene 4. Oh, reason not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. 
Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. Thou art a lady. If only to go warm were gorgeous. Why, nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man, as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you that stir these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely. Touch me with noble anger, and let not women's weapons, water drops, stain my man's cheeks. No, you unnatural hags, I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall... I will do such things what they are, yet I know not that they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. I have full cause of weeping, but this heart shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, or ere I'll weep. Oh, fool, I shall go mad. So we do see that, that, again, elements of political philosophy where Shakespeare is dealing with the abuse of kingly power. We've discussed how he deals with that in Macbeth, how he deals with it in Hamlet, how he deals with it implicitly in The Merchant of Venice, and how he deals with it now in King Lear. Clearly, as a, as a Catholic, this is an issue close to Shakespeare's heart. It's as though King Lear is being called to obedience to virtue, at the very least, in the play. The king is subject to the same laws, the same natural law, and the same divine law as everybody else, because ultimately he's human. Now, politically, the, his subjects uh, owe allegiance to him, but only in those areas that are appropriate, the subsidiarities, the church would now call it, mm-hmm. not in matters of religion, in, in matters of faith and morals. So the king, of course, eventually discovers this. When he discovers that his false daughters and other Machiavellian characters, such as Edmund, have betrayed him there's this wonderful scene on the heath where he strips all his clothes off and quite clearly the way that shakespeare phrases it around a franciscan ballad which is intoned at exactly this time of the play this is meant to be a reflection of saint francis of assisi who throws off all the goods of the world takes off all of his clothes gives them to his father and walks off naked into the woods uh that ultimately you know this is the reality of man that we are naked before god whether we're king or beggar. And of course, there are beggars that become prophets in the play. Poor Tom, who's really a, a loyal subject of the king, who's forced to live in disguise. Again, Catholic priests going around the country dressed as gardeners to great households or as itinerant travelers or because they can't go around as priests. So the resonances here are profound and manifold. King Lear, too, it, it strikes me the elements, that storm, where it takes place. Given where Shakespeare is in his life, isn't it one of the few plays where that is a character in the play itself? Just the nature, everything that's happening around him? Yeah, of course, what is the turbulence? If you go back to ancient Greek epics, then thunder is always a sign of Zeus, a sign of the father of the gods, the father almighty. So the storm can be seen, I think, on both levels as good people, virtuous people being the victims of injustice, Machiavellian intrigue 
whether it be in the play or beyond the play in Shakespeare's own time. It can also be how these same events bring about providential justice and conversion, where, of course, this suffering and wisdom comes along through suffering, suffering we get from, you know, from Aeschylus, that this suffering, the storm, adding to it wet, cold, thrown out of any shelter, nowhere near the fire, that this leads to King Lear's conversion, so suffering leading to wisdom, leading to conversion, which we can also see the storm not just as the evils of life, but as God's providential role. And of course, God ultimately does work even through the evil of injustice to bring about good. And this, I think, is what we see here, that the storm itself is indicative of the divine. It's bigger than him. Exactly, exactly. I mean, human pride being put in its place, literally. Once he submits and he lets go, the suffering is looked upon as a blessing. Well, absolutely. And his words, I mean, as he strips his clothes off at this point of Franciscan-like conversion, off, off you lendings, as if all of our material possessions, even the very clothes on our back, are lent to us. They're not ours. Any more than life is ours. It's lent to us. And what do we do with this which is lent to us by God during our lifetime while we have use of it? So here now, from the beginning of the play where Leah thinks that he owns the kingdom, now he doesn't even think he owns his own clothes. They're lent mm-hmm. to him. And it's course, from that moment of wisdom that we see Leah emerging slowly but surely through his agony in the garden that comes later in the play to this beatific vision at the end that he is indeed redeemed by that moment of humility and that moment of conversion. The ultimate solution to pride is humility. Not the ultimate, it's the only solution. You know, mm-hmm. that the, the sin of Satan was the sin of pride. Uh, the sin of Adam and Eve was the sin of pride. The incarnation of God was the virtue of humility. And it's only through humility that the, that the poison of pride can be overcome. We need to remember that pride is the sin that, that gives us permission to commit the other six deadly sins. Once we have pride, we think it's okay if we commit the others because we've justified ourselves. So the, the only humility to that father of all sins is humility. And King Lear shows it, and that is the beginning of his wisdom and the beginning of his redemption. To venture into an area you've discussed so often, but I think it, it bears repeating, the importance of Shakespeare's Catholicism is truly essential to having the depth of understanding of these plays. In my book, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, there's an appendix on why Protestants should not be scared of the Catholic Shakespeare. And that is because the Catholic Shakespeare is not engaging with Luther. There might be elements, but for the most part, it's not about a theological discourse or discussion or dialogue with Lutheranism or Protestantism. Mm -hmm. It's about the reality of living in a secular fundamentalist dictatorship. Because for Catholics in England, under a state religion, remember that the English Reformation is very different from the Reformation in Europe, which was about differences in theology. This was about the king deciding he would be head of the church. And Catholicism is therefore an illegal faith, an illegal religion being persecuted, and priests being put to death. We should say also that Puritans and nonconformists were also being put to death by the same Anglican establishment. Mm-hmm. So the experience that Shakespeare has as a Catholic in England is actually very similar to the experience that nonconformist Protestants were having in England at the same time. That where secular fundamentalism and de facto relativism were persecuting Christianity. And in that sense, the Catholic Shakespeare actually, from the context of our 21st century, where the enemy 
of Christians, whether it be the Catholic or Protestant, is secular fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. It's the same evil that Shakespeare is talking about in Macbeth, in King Lear, etc. So the Catholic Shakespeare is crucial to understanding the play, but it's not something that should frighten off or scare non-Catholic Christians. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.